All right, my name is Bryce. I'm a pastoral resident here at Antioch, so I serve alongside uh, Pastor Darius, the elders, the rest of the staff. If you're new here, uh, a special welcome to you. We'd love to meet you afterwards and get to know you a little bit. So first thing that I'd like to do just for housekeeping items is to dismiss kids. If you are in kindergarten to second grade, feel free to make your way onto the back. There's going to be a couple leaders who are bringing you back to your classrooms. Like, I think they're already gone. Like, you're way ahead of me. Speaking of being way ahead, uh, anybody here watched the Minnesota Vikings and Kirko Chains come back epically yesterday? Yeah, I did see a few hands. Ask Brian Oates. He was there. So the man is particularly excited. So one other thing I want to say, maybe for those of you who are coming in after announcements, just want to give you a quick reminder that uh, this Saturday we will be doing a Christmas Eve service at 4 p.m., we won't be here gathering on Sunday morning, but there are other churches that are within the EFCA network that we are a part of that you can attend. You can find which ones are having services in your bulletin, so that way everybody's on the same page. So before getting into our text today, I want to tell you the story of a man named Uncle Steve. All right, Uncle Steve is technically my uncle-in-law, I was introduced to him in kind of fall, winter of 2017 when Emily and I were dating, we were engaged, and I came over to her extended family's Christmas gathering for the first time. It's when I really got to know him. So when we got married, part of the deal, it was almost like stipulations in a rookie contract, right? That like, as first overall pick, one of the deals that I signed when we got married was that Christmas Eve belonged to the Brandt family, which is Emily's extended family. So like Arbor Day, Thanksgiving, whatever holiday I want to celebrate with whomever, that's fine as long as Christmas Eve belonged to them. And honestly, it's been a really fun tradition. There's a lot of kids who run around in the basement playing full contact ping pong, which was a thing last year. We get Carol's song in the living room. It's a really good time. And Uncle Steve has been there for every single one of those years so far. Now, a bit about him, he sports a very distinguished mustache. He has been a lifelong guy who's worked in the trades. He loves, loves, loves football, but loves, loves, loves Jesus even more. And so obviously yesterday was a really big day for him as a big Vikings fan. But he's incredibly hardworking, and he has helped lead Bible study fellowship groups with his wife for at least a couple of decades now. So the bottom line is that he is a great man. But in the family, at every Christmas Eve, there's a competition between at least most of the guys. Some of my competition is sitting here right now. So the guys all have this running bet is who at the end of the night can get a hug from Uncle Steve. <laughs> now, normally all of us are complete losers, and all we get is like a consolation handshake, right? It's a good handshake. Do not get me wrong. But in this pursuit of getting a hug from Uncle Steve, we all lose, except for one year so far, and it was Christmas of 2020, which already, that's all I got to say, and you kind of understand, Christmas of 2020, it was a hard year for a lot of us between pandemic restrictions, the grief, the loss, and all the different inconveniences, and for me, Christmas of 2020 was particularly hard as well, and I don't mean just because of the pandemic, but it was also the first year I was not celebrating the holidays with my dad, who had suddenly died that May, and at that point on Christmas Eve, we're all gathering together as usual for a little bit, and it really hit me for the first time. Like, I don't get to celebrate with my dad this year. And my, my dad, Don Langley, was a jolly old man at Christmas. 
It's actually where a lot of my love of Americana, all the traditions and festi- like, like that's where it all comes from, is from him. And so I remember going to Emily's family gathering. I was honestly just emotionally devastated. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to see anybody until Uncle Steve walked up to me. And one other thing I should mention about Uncle Steve is that he also lost his dad suddenly in his life. So he was very well acquainted with how I felt. And that Christmas Eve, I got to spend a lot of time with Uncle Steve. He hardly left my side that entire night. Talked football, welding, home renovation, and more football. And at the end of that night, I won. I got a solid hug from Uncle Steve. So Jake, Dave, scoreboard. (laughs) But it was the most wide open window into Uncle Steve's heart that I ever got. The way he conversated with me, how he kept me engaged, again, how he hardly left my side that entire night. And that made Christmas of 2020 feel a little less sad that year. So Steve Rice, his real birth name, who loves Jesus, and having gone through such a profound loss, recognized that and extended something to me that maybe a lot of you too have experienced, or as we're going to talk about today, maybe you're in need of a lot of this year, and that's comfort. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 11. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11. Now, would you please stand with me as you're able for the reading of Scripture as a posture of reverence and submission to the text. Now, all this is going to be behind me on the screen in the English Standard Version. Otherwise, feel free to use whatever you have in a physical Bible in front of you. And one more thing before we read together is there's going to be a prompt at the end of our text for everybody to collectively respond together. That'll be highlighted at the very end of this. So here we go. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, that we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not unrely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. So we're continuing in our annual Advent series until this coming Saturday evening when everything climaxes in the church calendar and we officially celebrate the eve of Christ's birth. And what I want to do is actually begin by recapping the themes that we've explored the last two weeks before getting into the meat of this text. So if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, you'll notice the banner behind me that reads Thrills of Hope, which is kind of a tagline over our Advent series that beckons us 
to evaluate what kinds of other things are we tempted by our enemy to put our hope in during the Christmas season. And when we feel the gravitational pull of those temptations, how do we remember the one true thrill of hope in Jesus Christ, the true gospel, the good news of salvation, and then how do we respond to that in the thousands of other thrills of hope that we experience in our everyday discipleship? So week's one theme was this. When you're tempted towards over-sentimentality, put your hope in the true biblical story of Christmas. Last week's theme that we explored is when you're tempted towards materialism, put your hope in Christ-centered generosity. And here's where we're going this week. When you are experiencing sorrow at Christmas, put your hope in the comfort of Christ. When you're experiencing sorrow during Christmas, put your hope in the comfort of Christ. So let me, let me ask a few priming questions for all of you to set this up and to introduce this theme of hoping in the comfort of Christ. How many of you are here, and if you were blunt, honest with yourself and other people, you would say that you are either not looking forward to Christmas or you just wish the season was over already? And even more seriously, how many of you are here and feel that the crack of winter combined with relational turbulence associated with this time of year and all the different things, all the difficulties this year posed, maybe a, a miscarriage, declining health, grieving the loss of a loved one, the financial stresses, and even the sorrows of loneliness, the inability to see family, do all those things make you feel, again, like this holiday season should just get itself over with? How do I feel the comfort of Christ in the midst of all of those things? And if you are feeling any or all of that, honestly, I'm really glad that you're here. We as a church are very glad that you are here because we don't want to act like these perfect, sinless replacements for all those other people that cause stress in your life, but rather, we want to obey Paul's uh, commands to the Galatians when he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you so fulfill the law of Christ. So in other words, we want to be honest people who point each other to the comfort found in the triune God when we're tempted to resign ourselves to chronic despair and to worry. We want to live out that value as Antioch of being that loving family, not just in theory or as a tagline, but in real life and on the street. So heavy as this subject matter might all feel, I want to say at the outright that if there's any place in the world that we should be able to talk about this with compassion and conviction, it is first and foremost the church. So what we're going to do with the rest of our time together, having said all that, is if you're feeling the heaviness of beclouded emotions, you're questioning the authenticity of your faith when external stresses associated with this season are kind of grating against it, if that's what you're feeling, then what we're going to do in our time is we'll find that Paul's encouragement speaks directly to the source of that comfort. And we're going to see how his vulnerability speaks prophetically to us in these seats here, especially at Christmas time when stresses hit fever pitches. And most importantly, we're going to learn how we can take solace in the fact that at one point in history, unto us, our true comfort found in Jesus Christ was born. So let's begin by couching this all in our text. So please go back with me if you have those Bibles to 2 Corinthians 1. Last week, we were uh, actually at the midway point of Paul's second letter to an embattled Corinthian church in chapter 9. We were talking about how God loves a cheerful giver, especially at Christmas time. Today, we're going back to the beginning of that letter. So in verses 1 to 2 
Paul gives what would have been considered a very traditional, long, and kind of eloquent Greek greeting, but he gets into this letter in a very vulnerable way that's almost unique to this one. Verses three through five. And by the way, all the verses that we're gonna go through line by line, they're gonna be on the screen behind me, so feel free to follow along or in your physical Bible. So verses three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now the first thing to actually notice here is these two verses literally begin and end with Jesus. Really, it's Jesus over everything, especially at Advent where we are celebrating and recognizing the incarnation. It's that event where God physically comes to earth as the only begotten son. So let's look at what quality then or attribute of Jesus is being highlighted in this, since it's Jesus over everything. Verse 3, it's the God of all comfort. Comfort is a word that's going to come up a lot of times in these seven total verses. We see it in verse 4. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those in any other affliction with the comfort, which we ourselves are comforted by God. So verse 5, we share abundantly in comfort too. That's in two verses. So in all these instances going forward and then in the rest of our verses, the same Greek word is used for comfort, and that word is paraklesis, which means calling to one's aid, encouragement, consolation, as to be close beside somebody. So if you think about that definition for comfort, and you really try to imagine it, one of the first images that it might invoke is somebody like a hospital chaplain. They come to the bedside of somebody who's really sick, they're not just in need of physical treatment, but in need of emotional and spiritual encouragement to be lifted from their station and be directed towards Jesus. So maybe some of you have been in the hospital and you've seen somebody experience that, or you've actually been in that position to comfort somebody either at a bedside when they're going through a certain affliction or a really hard time, and God used you to be that instrument of comfort to them. Now, something else to notice in this passage is that Paul is putting himself on the exact same level of need for Jesus as the Corinthians do. So he says, the, the way that God of all mercies comforts us in our afflictions later on so that we may be able to comfort others. So he's speaking in plural terms, us, we, our comfort, us comforting you all. So yes, Paul's demonstrating his spiritual authority over the Corinthians, but in this case, he chooses not to talk to them like dad sitting the kids on the couch for some real talk. There's plenty of other places that he does that in the first letter. But this time, Paul is bending a knee down to the Corinthians. He is getting in the muck of their personal hardships in a real, direct, and gritty way. So in this way, Paul is seeking to comfort, to paraclesis the Corinthians in the same way that Jesus, Jesus comforted him and continued to comfort him in the way that, honestly, Jesus comforts us through the power of the Holy Spirit in a personal, direct, and intimate intervention that attends to our direct and very individual needs. So if you read the four Gospels, Jesus doesn't stiff arm, put up these really rigid boundaries, and tell the crowds to keep their problems over there. 
Doesn't do that whatsoever. Rather, Jesus actively decides to intervene. He's compelled to do so, which inspires Paul to do the same for the Corinthians. He's not writing this letter saying, I want you to keep your problems in your church. Don't bother me with them. You know, call me later. He decides to get in the middle of these problems with them, speaking with authority, with compassion, and that conviction directly to the issues that they're facing. Mark Seifert's commentary says it this way, quote, comfort is a help that speaks. It brings not merely outward relief, but the knowledge that there is one who loves and cares, a God who sees distress and answers lament. A God who sees distress and answers lament. So pausing for a second on Seifert's wisdom there, I want to ask you something, because we're talking about these different shades of sorrow around the holidays, and I'm sure it would be very easy to recall a very hard time that you've had or one that you're currently having, and you could probably describe it in all the details with maybe minimal effort. But what would it be like to be in that situation again, in your mind's eye, like putting yourself in that situation and knowing that Jesus himself was there at your side, paraclesis, comforting you, attending your need directly? And how would that change your outlook on the situation, how you see those difficult relationships or how you respond to that inner monologue of loneliness? How would you respond if you knew that? Here's a look how Paul responded. We're gonna actually jump down to verses eight to 11 and then we'll return to six and seven in a bit. So this is gonna be verse eight to 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you flip there on your own and you read this detailed, Paul describes some of the things that happened to him throughout his missionary journeys that backfill this language of the afflictions we experienced in Asia, which include being whipped, shipwrecked, ran out of town, beaten up by angry mobs, starving, and homeless. Literally just to name a few. But here's the rub, though, for all that, because Paul's not trying to use this as a, see, my problems are way bigger than yours, quit whining. Paul's trying to say that he survived and endured those experiences he had in Asia on account of God, verse 9, who raises the dead. And Paul insists that God is going to deliver him again and again to comfort him, to paraclesis him again and again, verse 10. And notice, again, he's using plural tenses for all these words. So he's putting himself in that same need. So he's saying to everybody, that same thing that God comforted you in, he's going to do it again and again. We will be delivered. God will comfort us. He will attend to us. So when we arrive then at verse 11, we see how Paul describes one of the mechanisms for how God comforts his people. And here's what he says. You also must help us. So God sends the Holy Spirit as a changing agent who lives inside of us to transform us, to soften us, to give us available eyes, hearts, and ears to tend to our brothers and sisters who are in need of that comfort. Kind of like Uncle Steve was the hands and feet of Jesus to comfort me 
when I was deeply, deeply bereaved. So in thinking about stirring up compassion for one another and in response to God's comfort that we have experienced, let me be the first to say that if you are here and you are struggling with turbulent family dynamics over the holidays, I've been there and I have been forced to confront some really hard situations when everybody got together. If you're here, you feel lonely, you are depressed or anxious, or during this time of Advent, the darkness feels particularly bleak. Uh, I have stared into that void of depression. I have felt the unnerving of anxiety, and I have been allowed, uh, alone in a crowded room before. And if you're here and you grieve during the holidays, and all it reminds you of is the loss that you've experienced, I have felt those stinging pangs of loss and struggling to be jolly when it comes naturally to everybody else. So I've been there, and I recognize some of those scars that you probably carry with you. And honestly, Uncle Steve did too. He recognized that in me because he had them himself. But I also don't want to glaze over all of that by saying I've dealt with those things all flawlessly because I haven't. And some of those things are still in process, and all of us are still in process with those things. But like Paul, he says, but God. Okay, but God, God the Father bent a knee to me, one of his children bought with a price by the blood of Jesus, who adopted me into his loving family, like Ephesians 1 says, and then given the Holy Spirit, my helper, my encouragement, and he's seen me through many dark nights of the soul, and he's going to continue to see me through those. So even when Christmas presents times where all those things rear their heads to me, to all of us, God does the same thing for everyone. He comforts us all, individually, uniquely, with urgency, and out of love. So remember, though, especially because we're talking about this at Christmas, that this was all made possible for Paul, and it's made possible for us right here and now, because it all began with God coming to earth in a feeding trough in a hick region of the Roman Empire to two very unlikely people. Advent was the dark, was the spark that lit the match of events that exploded in glory on Easter morning. So this month, this week even, we celebrate that spark, that spark of hope, that spark of comfort to us. So what I want to do, now that we've kind of mined the text, we've talked a lot about how Paul is experiencing this comfort, how he encourages us to pay that forward. We're going to spend a lot of time then thinking about how to apply this very practically. So how do we cope with all of these things around the holiday season? How can we as the church, the family of God, step in that gap of obedience to Jesus and be compelled by the Holy Spirit to paraclesis, to comfort each other in obedience to the scripture? So what we're going to do is walk through five points of kind of closing application. They're going to be in kind of no particular order, but I want you to consider these as points that you can take with you as you're maybe experiencing some of these things yourself or you know somebody else who is going through some of this. So the first is be meaningfully involved in community, especially during Christmas. So be meaningfully involved in community. Verses six and seven, this is where we're gonna go back to those other two verses. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same things that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. Here's the key. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, 
you will also share in our comfort. So one of Paul's overarching themes in both letters to the Corinthians, and it's arguable that the entirety of all his work in the New Testament, it can be summed up by a theme of unity, of unity in Christ. Yeah, there will be strife, there will be setbacks, there's going to be challenges, but at the end of the day, our response to salvation should be, as we talked about kind of last week, not out of guilt, not out of greed, but of gratitude. And so that gratitude, that acknowledgement of God's comfort graciously given to us should be paid forward in the context of community, of being together. So that means isolation is not your friend. Isolating yourself will only make you vulnerable to the common enemies of Christian discipleship, which have been historically understood as the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of which are in their worst ways trying to convince you and I that in the dark we should amount to something different or be put to get, better put together in the eyes of a nameless audience of some kind. So therefore, if you're here and Christmas is a painful reminder of loneliness or sorrows of all kinds and are in need of support, we want to have the front doors to the Waterbury building open, our living rooms and our calendars and all those different spaces that we can invite you into. We want to have those open to bring all your junk and process it all at the foot of the cross in the safety of supportive people who love Jesus. So really, be like Uncle Steve. And honestly, this is a way that I'll kind of shamelessly plug this. Join a community group or a DNA group. Like, if you haven't, these are really awesome built-in ways that we have here as a church to share in all these things here at Antioch, to share in the sufferings, but to also share in that comfort. So look for comfort in the context of community. The second point that we're going to explore is practice radically ordinary hospitality. This phrase is actually borrowed from Rosaria Butterfield, whose book, The Gospel Comes at the House Key, is this really awesome work on the power of opening your dinner tables, your living rooms, and your Google calendars to kin, to friend, and to even stranger. Okay, Hebrews 13.2 says it this way. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So in a time like this, where even an innkeeper who had no room gave whatever they were able to a young pregnant couple in Bethlehem, consider opening your doors to people who have nowhere to go or are particularly lonely during the holidays and intentionally check in on your neighbors. Like especially those of you who have a window into some of your neighbor's trials that they dealt with over the last year. So this is a really awesome opportunity, especially, I think, for those of you who either live in an apartment building or in a dorm, and you literally have people steps away from you and stacked on top of you. And that action of checking in on them, of practicing hospitality, of opening your door, that might just be that key that the Holy Spirit has put in your hands to unlock somebody's receptive hearts to the gospel. Consider that. What if that was you that the Holy Spirit is compelling to be that agent of change to introduce the gospel to them, especially at Christmas? So seek comfort in the context of community and practice radically ordinary hospitality. Here's number three. Set realistic expectations. Now here's what I mean by that. 
If you go to Health Partners' official website, they're one of the major healthcare providers that's here in the Twin Cities. They list some of the common environmental factors that lead to increases in mental health symptoms around the holidays. They have a whole laundry list of things, but here's an interesting one that they cite. High expectations often caused by the exaggerated portrayal of the holidays on TV, in movies, in the media, and on social media. Interesting. In weeks one and two of this series, we discussed how two major temptations in the Christmas season, again, are to over-sentimentality and to materialism, right? So sanding the true biblical account of Christmas down to a, a fun bedtime story or making Christmas presents an analog for greed, for jealousy, and manipulation. So I want you to think about how those two things alone, stacked on top of somebody's already difficult family life, the sorrows they experience, and this time of the year that can inflame all those things, how much havoc can that wreak on somebody's discipleship? So maybe that's you, and you're wondering how to calibrate your expectations when it feels like a massive undertaking to be joyful at Christmas. Well, here's one way we can think about that. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9 says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers, love this part, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So think about how that passage underlines. In the family of believers, okay, chances are you're not alone in feeling all of these things in the way that you do, which goes back to our first point of seeking comfort in community first. So seeking comfort in the context of community and practicing hospitality. So in that context of supportive, Jesus-loving people, my encouragement to you is practice being alert, being alert and being sober-minded by accepting and making very real expectations of the holidays, which means whatever your availability, your travel plans are, your commitments, don't make yourself a hermit and crawl into total hibernation until after the new year. That's not necessary, but rather those plans should be bathed in prayer and you should talk to people who know you, who know your circumstances, and can counsel you in what things are really good for you to participate in and when you should probably peel back a little bit. And not just peel back, but to actually be in a, in a position of receiving comfort. So the other thing that I want to say on that note is that you don't need to have you know, a massive budget, the ritziest zip code, the biggest house in the world to host every single person, their neighbor, and their neighbor's mom during the Christmas season in order to practice hospitality or to actually be in a position to comfort people because the most faithful metrics for all of these things, of comforting people, of, ex of showing hospitality, all of that is best measured by the availability of your heart and the depth of your soul. God doesn't look at the outward appearances, he looks at the heart. So seek community, practice hospitality, set real expectations. Here's number four. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, especially at Christmas. Now, that language of the word dwelling in you richly is from Colossians 3. And the reason I share this is because what the word of God, right, God's self-revelation to us, the way to know him best and most personally, how we can practice holiness, obedience, and to live joyfully, all of that can be discovered in the rich depths of Scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, I imagine, as it has been for me at points, 
that when you're emotionally off kilter or you're trying to make your way through this really thick fog of emotions, reading the Bible can feel like an absolute drag, can feel like cardboard. But I want you to think about it this way. If your emotions are like a thermometer, right, that instrument that if you walk into a room, you look at it, you can look and see how either warm or cold it feels in that room. If that's what your emotions are like, they're telling you how you really feel, for better or for worse, hot or cold, whatever, then let the objective word of God be like a thermostat, that instrument that adjusts the temperature of that room, brings it back to equilibrium, that makes it hospitable for you to stay in, to live in, and to to just live your life. So the promises in Scripture, again, they're objective, And they are, as Hebrews 6 describes, as a trustworthy anchor for the soul. They speak to the human conditions of sin, of suffering, regret, grieving, and everything else in between. So let the language of the Bible be spoken directly to those Christmas sorrows. For example, in worship this morning, Coley led us through a call to worship through Psalm 82. I want to read verses 1 through 4 again with says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So let the language of the Bible and its author's struggles give you words to your prayer life when all you feel like you can get out are groans, tears, and sighs of defeat. Let your hearts be reminded that God comforts the afflicted, and as the psalm promises, he gives justice to the weak, to the fatherless, to those who feel the fangs of lowliness sinking into their souls. So seek comfort in community, practice hospitality, set realistic expectations, and be saturated in your Bibles. Here's our last point, and this is actually where I'm going to invite the worship team up to join us in a time of reflecting on all of this and directing our affections to God. Here's our last point. Tell Jesus everything. Tell Jesus everything. And what I want to do is actually end our time by reading an excerpt from one of my all-time favorite Christian authors and theologians. His name's Octavius Winslow. He's a 19th century British Anglican. He was given the nickname the Pilgrim's Companion. And one of his most famous works of writing is called Go and Tell Jesus. And in fact, one of the first Christmas presents that Emily ever got me was an excerpt from this sermon in a typewriter and framed. It hangs in our office. It means a ton to me. So as we're touching down after combing through these scriptures for where God promised us, paraclesis, right, to comfort that direct intervention through Jesus, who was born, raised, died, and risen by the means of his people, like Uncle Steve. Let's let Winslow's words direct you into the loving arms of Christ, who, who bore all our burdens on Golgotha. It is possible that you are entangled within the meshes of a present difficulty, to the unravelment of which no clue presents itself, and from which there appears no way of escape. Human ingenuity is baffled, creature strength fails, all earthly means are exhausted, and you are at your wit's end. Behold your remedy, how near, how simple. Go and tell Jesus. Let's respond and worship together.